Well, we will come to a time in our service now. We're going to look at a passage from God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, would you turn to Genesis? Genesis, the very first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, beginning at verse 1. It's on page 2 in, uh, <laughs> if you're using this Brown Pew Bible. And when you found that, would you stand together with me and I'll read this passage for us. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you may, must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat the fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. The Lord God called to the man, where are you? And he answered, I was in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, the woman, the woman you put here with me. She gave me some of the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent, serpent deceived me, and I ate. This is God's word. You may be seated. Let me pray for us once more and just ask God's illumination on his word as we come to it, that he would give us understanding and wisdom as we seek to learn from it. Spirit of God, we uh, ask you to open our eyes, open our hearts, to receive what it is that you want to speak to us through this word, uh, an, an ancient word, God, taking us all the way back to the beginning, and yet we believe still a living word that can speak to us now directly because it is inspired by your spirit who lives and who is here present with us. God, you tell us when you send out your word, it doesn't return to you void, it accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it accomplish that purpose in each of us today, whatever that is. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Well, anyone of you who has been to a preschool before, maybe a church nursery, you've seen this. A child comes in, looks across the room, sees a child playing with a particular toy and walks directly over to that child, rips the toy out of their tiny little hands and goes, sits down and immediately just begins playing with the toy as though that were the most natural thing in the world. Parents are horrified. You can't, son, you can't do that. Jenny, you can't. And the child is just looking at you like, what? I wanted it. Uh, thanks for holding it for me. I don't know, whatever it is. We're horrified. They're like, that feels pretty normal to me. As kids begin to grow and get into, say, let's say the elementary school 
years, maybe just from parental instruction, uh, societal conditioning, whatever it is, it gets a little bit better. So now at a birthday party, for instance, what you can do now is observe your, your sweet little seven-year-old daughter looking around the table as the pieces of cake are served and just appraising. She'll go from her piece to the other pieces, making sure that no one else's piece is, is bigger than hers, has, has more icing than hers, has a better superior uh, sprinkle configuration than hers. We can see these things all the time. We, we see it all around us. And we look at those examples and, and we smile and we nod our just shake our heads and say, okay. Yeah, can I, uh, can I just suggest to you this morning that... The only reason you don't see us as adults acting in the exact same ways, for the most part, I know we all know that person, but for the most part, you don't see adults acting in these exact same ways. It's not at all because we, we, we don't have the same selfish, self-focused nature in us, but it's only, it is only because we've just learned, we've become more sophisticated as adults, we've become, we found more socially acceptable means of doing the exact same thing, of ripping the toy out of someone's hand. We've just learned how to do it in a way that's more socially acceptable in order to set up life, in order to set up the world in a way that makes it primarily about us and our comfort. In Corvatus in Se is the Latin phrase first coined by St. Augustine in the 4th century, then later picked up by Martin Luther in the 16th century, in order to describe the nature of every human heart, regardless of age, meaning to be curved inward on oneself. That this is the natural state of every human heart. And according to the Bible, it is the primary source. It is the, the ground zero, if you will, of all relational brokenness that we experience both with one another as well as with God. Now, of course, the, the destructive effects of this inward curved nature are experienced by everyone. Everybody experiences this. is not a problem for Christians who believe the Bible. Like, everybody experiences this, and everyone from uh, psychologists to sociologists to self-help books, they look around and they'll all acknowledge that there's a problem. There is a problem right now that's, that's bringing about all this fighting that's bringing about all this relational breakdown between everyone, between spouses, between kids and their families, between entire nations. It's the thing that's going to make you fight this afternoon about where you go to lunch. Everyone recognizes that there, there is a, a problem. The only difference is that rather than looking at environmental concerns, uh, historic injustices, uh, psychological pathology, the Bible is the only place that locates the source of the problem as being embedded within our very nature. The problem is us. It's the realization that led, some of you know this story of G.K. Chesterton back in 1905 to write into the Times uh, when it put out a request saying, send in your submissions to tell us your idea of what's wrong with the world. The question, what's wrong with the world? Uh, Chesterton apparently wrote into the newspaper this very simple reply, dear sir, I am. Yours, G.K. Chesterton. But the question remains, okay, so if that's true, what, what can we do about it? What, what can be done? I mean, 
let's just even assume for the moment that the Bible is right and that the source of these various forms of relational brokenness in our world is the result of an inward curved nature that, as Augustine said, does not merely destroy an individual, but the very fabric of human community. Is the Bible just diagnostic? Does it just point out the problem and say, that's what it is, that's your problem? Or does the Bible also offer us a prescription for the disease? Well, we are beginning this new series today entitled Procurum, a Latin word meaning to be curved outwards. For over the next seven weeks, we're going to look at what the Bible has to say about both the origin of our inward curved nature as well as the way God uses everything from marriage to singleness to our sexuality and ultimately to the coming of Christ himself in order to help reshape the curvature of our nature from inward and self-focused to outward and towards others. You know how in Shakespeare plays they do that thing, it's called an aside, where the speaker will step out of the action and kind of just say something to the audience? I, I need to do that right now with you. I need to just have a moment of, of transparency with you. Just peek behind the curtain if I could do that for a moment of pastoral life. Whenever I'm putting together a series of messages, I, I really seek God's wisdom. I'm like, God, what's God, what are you doing in our church? What do you want to say to us? And I really believe with, with all that I'm seeing in our world, with all that I see in our lives as I get to know all of you better and you invite me into where you're at, I see all this relational brokenness going on in our world. And so I felt this is exactly what God has led me to, to preach to you. But can I also tell you that as I put this together, I am both excited and incredibly intimidated by this, this message series. Um, I haven't felt this intimidated since we did Ecclesiastes because uh, it just feels like I've started it now, and now that I've started I'm kind of like, shoot, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? This is, wow, how am I going to do this? And yet, how many of you know that just because I'm your pastor doesn't mean that God isn't still growing me and shaping me to, to grow my faith? I believe this is what he's called me to. I feel absolutely inadequate. And some of that inadequacy is the reason why you see actually different images about how we're promoting this series even. I put that poster up. I thought that kind of demonstrated something cool. And then all of a sudden people were like, no, what is that even about? And what's with this like super cheesy Hallmark card? And then anyway, all that just shows I feel totally inadequate to do this. But I trust that God's going to be able to use my weakness and inadequacy still to demonstrate his strength and to teach us something really cool about how he wants to reshape that inward curve nature in order to just fix and help heal so much brokenness in our world as well as in our relationship with God. So that's end of aside, back to the action. Needed to, to get that off my chest to you. Thanks for giving me that moment of confession to you. If you've ever watched um, movies, television series about crime investigation, I, I, I love these kinds of shows, or maybe you've just seen news reports that are investigating uh, certain uh, disasters that have taken place. One of the things you might know is that, for instance, if there's a big fire, huge fire that takes place, once it's extinguished, they call in a fire investigator. They call someone in to, to investigate what's gone on. And what you might know is that the fire investigator doesn't just report on the extent of the damage. He doesn't just say, hey, this is what happened. This is how all this stuff got burned. He also, his job is to find out what is the origin of the fire. Where did it all start 
And what I want us to look at together in particular from this passage we just read in Genesis 3 is the Bible's answer to the question, what is the origin of that inward curved nature? What is the origin of that inward curved nature that brings about all this relational brokenness in our lives today? Where did it all start? And I want us to look at the Bible's answer to that question first before we get into talking about all these different ways that God gives us these different tools to help reshape the relational brokenness because here's the thing. If God created men and women in his image and likeness, which the Bible also says, and he created us in a way that was designed inwardly curved to begin with, well then, sorry, I'm I'm not going to be all that interested in hearing God's solution to the problem. If he created us this way, why would I want to hear your solution how to fix it? Why wouldn't you just do it in the first place right? But that would mean that basically God had either designed us accidentally or intentionally that way. But if there was a time that existed where we were not curved in on ourselves, if there was a time when, when we were outwardly curved towards others that saw us connecting deeply and meaningfully with one another, with, our, with, with the creation around us and with God, well then, God's offer of a solution is much more uh, compelling, uh, much more hopeful for us to want to investigate. And the good news revealed to us in these first two chapters before our passage in Genesis is that God did not, in fact, design us in a relationally destructive way. This isn't how we started. On the contrary, actually, the Bible reveals a triune God who is relational by his very nature, which means that to be made in his image and likeness is to be made for relationship. That's how you were originally designed. And as we look at this terrible day when mankind rebelled against God and sin entered into the world, which, spoiler alert, that's the origin of the problem. (laughs) That's where it all started. That's where we became inwardly curved on ourselves, bending and distorting God's good design from its original intent. I want to show you three results of what happened that day from our passage. I want to show you how the entrance of sin into the world caused us to be curved away from God, as well as curved away from one another. Curved away from one another and God and and inward on ourselves. But then, as we close this morning, I want to show you how incredibly, in the midst of our rebellion, in the moment when we became curved away, God also offered us hope for reshaping the curve. So the sin entering into the world has caused us to be curved away from God, curved away from one one another, but God also has offered us hope for reshaping the curve. So if you have closed your Bibles, would you open it up again to that passage in Genesis 3? Follow along with me as we begin now this investigation of the origin of the problem. Okay, so let's look first of all at how the entry of sin into the world caused us to be curved away from God. We have become curved away from God. Now, as I said, the first two chapters of Genesis reveal this really beautiful picture of an all-powerful, benevolent creator God who speaks the universe and, and everything that exists into existence. And what the first two chapters focus on primarily is God's creation of our planet, Earth, if you didn't know, where where all these different things, birds, animals, land, sea, sun, moon, and stars, all put into place this incredible creation, finely tuned to a specific place in our universe, perfectly distanced from and orbiting at the perfectly right speed around the sun in order to be able to sustain life on our planet. 
It's incredible design. And then flip over one page back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. We see God adding people into the mix. And he says this, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth and over the creatures that move around along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. And then look down to verse 31. The beginning of verse 31 rounds out the entire creation picture, saying these words, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. Very good. Now there's already a whole lot that we could say about that, but I want to focus us in particularly what we're saying as it relates to our investigation of the problem. So what this shows us at least is that God is the creator of our world as well as men and women who are put in that world and made in his image and likeness, and creation started very good. It was very good, which commentators note is both an expression both of the completeness and perfection of God's creation in his eyes, as well as his enthusiasm at having created it. It's kind of like, God, yes, this is very good. Moving to chapter 2, what we see now is more of a description of the relationship between God and the man that he has placed in the earth, the, the depth of relationship that God had with his people that he put in the world. And we also see one of the clearest examples of the fact that God is relational by nature in chapter 2, verse 18, when God declares the very first not good about his creation. And the first not good thing that he sees as not good is that the man is alone. That shows us, hey, God has set us up for relationship. And so in response, God creates Eve, he says, to be a suitable helper, a suitable partner. Literally in the Hebrew, it is a partner matching him. Now there's lots, lots more we're going to say about that in the coming weeks. Uh, but just suffice it for the moment to say that uh, a helper matching him, as commentator Gordon Wenham notes, implies neither the strength nor the weakness of the helper, but rather it's what he's focusing on here is Adam's strength for all that God has called him to do and to be is insufficient on his, by himself. He needs the help in order to be all that God has called him to be and to do, just as the woman needs the man's help to be all that he's called her to do and to be. Finally, the rest of chapter 2 includes the very first marriage ceremony, as well as culminating in one final implied very good in verse 25, where we read, the man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. And I say that not to be crass at all, but because well beyond the close sexual intimacy implied there, that, that we can still know to this day in a marriage relationship, beautiful thing, there's also a deep relational closeness implied by that. And that what it's saying is that there was just this completely knowing one another, a complete transparency and with no shame. They knew each other perfectly and completely with no shame, which is something much, much harder for us to accomplish now in a post-Genesis 3 world. All of which together, I think, clearly shows us God's design of men and women from the beginning was not inwardly curved. We didn't start out this way. It was curved outwards curved outwards to facilitate relationship with one another as well as with God. And then into this perfect creation, into this creation full of beauty and, and deep relational, relational intimacy and closeness, a serpent appears in verse 1 of our passage. 
Now, this interaction between the serpent and Eve, that's a whole sermon into itself. Uh, I'm not going to really go into detail. We're going to talk more about the effects of the problem. But I want to say a few things in summary because it's kind of an important part of the passage. First of all, just want to say quickly, aside from the knowledge that God created snakes, uh, it does say God created all the things. There's no explanation given whatsoever as to why or how this snake is talking. Um, I don't know how many of you stumbled over that. We were good until we got to the part where it said, and then the snake said, and we were just like, wait, wait, what? He, sorry, he what? And Eve doesn't seem to be bothered by it. She's just like, oh, no. We're kind of like, can somebody explain what? Bible doesn't explain. It just states it. Snake spoke to her. And if you grew up in church, uh, this is important for you to know as well. Nowhere in this text does the Bible state that the serpent either is or is being embodied by Satan. It doesn't say that, actually. Not here. It's not until the end of the Bible, actually, Revelation 12, where the serpent is identified directly with the devil. Here, it's just a crafty snake talking, which we now know is actually Satan. And as is always the case, <laughs> Satan's crafty uh, attack is directed squarely and solely at the word of God. And his desire is to destroy God's good creation. That, that is always Satan's way. He calls God's loving command into question in verse 1. Did God really say? Think about it. Just, just dialogue with me, Eve. Did God really say that? Let's just talk about it. And then deceives Eve in verse 4 and 5 into questioning the good intent of God's prohibition back in chapter 2, not to eat from this tree. It was God's good intent and actually... She now questions, did God really actually have my best interests in mind? The very same struggle we continue to have to this day. Finally, as verse 6 reveals, although uh, Adam is called to care for his wife and to be a help to her, as she's clearly in danger here, we see that passively Adam offers neither to her. Look at verse 6. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. You notice how we don't hear anything from Adam? Yeah, that's a problem. He was there the whole time and did nothing. And thus, Adam is both complicit in her rebellion and he actually takes the full brunt of the responsibility for their rebellion, even though Eve was the first one to eat. And we know that because when God comes to call Adam and Eve to account in verse 9, you notice it says, he called to the man, where are you? He calls first to Adam, not to Eve. And Romans 5, in, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul repeatedly says, sin and death are said to have entered into creation through the, trans, through the trespass of one man. Now that's not the Bible being sexist. What that is, is it's a statement of the accountability and the responsibility that was given to Adam which he clearly did not follow through on. And the painful, distorting, bending result of Adam and Eve's rebellion is that they become, first of all, curved away from God. And you see that, first of all, in verse 7. Look with me there. It says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Now, this has direct implications for how it is that we are also curved away from one another as well. But the way it curves us away from God is that in covering their nakedness, they cover over. Really, they are disparaging against God's good design of them. 
the uniqueness of God's design. They're trying to cover it over. Now, no, they can't actually erase the uniqueness, but the intent is clearly to suppress it. Then next we see the immediate curving away from God in verse 8, where we're told, Then the man and the wife heard this sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden at the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord among the trees in the garden. Now, although I don't know what they were thinking when they thought, hey, we can hide from God. Uh, that's probably about as ridiculous as if you ever played hide-and-seek with a toddler and they'll just cover their eyes like right in the middle of the living room and think that they're hiding from you. It's about as ridiculous as that. And yet, much more tragically, much more sadly, what we see is this heartbreaking reality that demonstrates that the depth and the closeness of relationship that they had with God is now completely gone. It's completely vanished. They now relate to God instead of love and closeness. They relate to God with fear and suspicion. I can tell you from a much smaller standpoint as a parent, uh, uh, as my daughters have transitioned into teenage years, I've, I've noticed how there is a, a difference in the way they communicate with me. It used to be all like hugs and yeah, and listen, and then all of a sudden become 13 came and all of a sudden it's like, hey, dad. Hey, are you doing good? Yeah. I feel this difference in communication. It's really hard, actually. I feel like really this like separation between us. It's hard. That's a much smaller case here. The, in a moment, in, in the moment of eating, all of a sudden their orientation against God becomes completely shut off. Rather than running to God, they hide from him. Rather than trusting God, they're immediately suspicious of him. And the last and most devastating curve away from God, we see in verses 22 through 24, which we didn't read this morning, but that's where it speaks of God actually having to banish Adam and Eve from the garden altogether, which equates to really a complete separation from the presence of God now because of their sin. And maybe, maybe you'd look at that and you'd say, yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's really hard. I mean, that's how it goes sometimes. It's super hard when something good falls apart, and I can see the Bible describing that. Yeah, that's, that's really too bad. But don't you see, actually, it's much more than just too bad. This inward curving away from God doesn't just affect Adam and Eve alone. It affects every single person since then. It affects you and I still to this day. Why? Well, because... Although Adam was the representative head for himself and his wife, he's also the representative head for all mankind, as Paul clearly states in Romans 5, 12 and 19, which is the reason why you and I remain curved away from God to this day. His sin now affects all mankind. It's a much bigger deal than just a broken relationship for them. It's a broken relationship for all of us. It's a curving away of, for all of us from God because of his rebellion. And much more than being sad and unfortunate, you're being curved away from God, both is the primary cause for the reason that you're curved away from everyone else as well, and also why the fullness of relationship and the fullness of life that God intended for us is now impossible to accomplish. Why? Because we were designed for relationship with God. That's how he made you. You were designed for relationship with him, and it's a big part of what it means to be made in his image and likeness. And so the broken relationship that causes us to be curved away from him also causes us now to be curved away from each other too, which we're going to look at in a second. As Augustine stated it so powerfully, O oh God, thou hast made us for thyself. 
and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in you. Which means, for everyone here today, whether you know God or not, we can still enjoy pleasures and blessings of this world still today, uh, uh, stained, distorted, and fractured by sin's curse as it is. You can. But your experience of the fullness of life that God intended for us to know will always remain as limited as a child who receives a new toy on Christmas morning, but without the batteries included. That will be our continual frustrating uh, uh, disappointing experience in life until the direction of the curve can be reshaped back towards God. It's the only remedy to the problem. Okay, so that's being curved away from God. Lastly, I want you to see how the entry of sin into the world caused us to be curved away from God, but also curved away from one another. As we've seen, the two run into each other. We are now curved away from one another. And where you see this sad result relationally for Adam and Eve is, again, back in verse 7, as I mentioned. Uh, as their eyes are open in the complete transparent knowing of one another, embodied in their unashamed nakedness, dissolves in a moment. And more than just suppressing God's unique design, they also flatten the way that God designed their differences in order to complement one another. They not only hide from God now, they hide from one another. And the distance between them becomes increasingly further and further as a result of this. The next and more obvious result we see in verses 12 and 13 when God confronts Adam and Eve about their rebellion. So up until this time, we see this in verse 9 and 10. God calls to the man, where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Which, if you think about it, is actually this really gracious line of questioning from someone who's been deeply offended. God is the party who's been offended, and yet he comes calling out to the man, well, what happened? What have you done? Did someone, who told you? He's, he's interacting incredibly graciously with Adam, although he's the one who's been offended. Because you've got to remember, God's not asking questions to be informed. He already knows what's happened, right? He's trying to draw them into a place of repentance, of confession. But if you look at Adam's response in verse 12, he replies, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit and I ate it. Now, I don't think you need a degree in relational counseling to see that uh, what Adam has done here has pushed his wife squarely and directly underneath the bus, as it were. Uh, nor is it probably hard to imagine the kind of relational distance that would be created by something like this. Like, Adam's going to have a bad couple of months, right? Like, this is not just a small infraction like his immediate response is no no not me um but what if you look closely you see that not only is adam passing off the blame onto his wife he's also really passing it off onto god as well isn't he the woman you put here so you you two really that's really where the problem is yeah i ate but you two are really the ones responsible here but if you look at eve's response in verse 13 you see that although she doesn't blame her husband for his unwillingness to help her in her time of, of danger and in falling. She's no better at taking responsibility for actions herself. She says, no, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So although God's giving them this gracious opportunity to repent, to just simply say, yes, I ate the tree, I'm so sorry, I know that's not what you wanted from me. God, forgive me. Instead, what we see is just 
one after the other, just passing the buck to someone else. No, no, not me, her. No, no, not me, the serpent. No, not responsible here. But what's also painfully evident in all of this is that their curve away from God has led them also to be curved away from one another. They are relationally distant now, and that distance is only increasing by the moment. And yet what's more, as God describes the consequences of their rebellion, verses 14 through 19, we see that even creation, the whole earth is now cursed because of their sin. And also, we also see that as it relates to their curving away from one another, if you look at verse 16, there's a particularly devastating consequence there. Now, uh, uh, God is talking about to the woman the, the responsibility, the, the, the consequence for her rebellion. And he says, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain, you will give birth to the children. Now, that's already bad enough. That seems like enough. But he goes on to say this, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now, what's that all about? Well, what most commentators point out is that when God says your desire will be for your husband, that's not speaking about a sexual desire, but about a desire to dominate. Your desire will now be to dominate over your husband, to push against and to devour. And we know that because later on in chapter 4, when God is confronting his, their oldest son Cain about his murderous desire, he says... Uh, there, he says, sin is crouching at, the at your door, and sin's desire is to have you. And that word desire is, is to devour, to completely overtake you. And it's the very same word, the very same Hebrew word used in, chapter six, in verse 16. Your desire to dominate, to devour, will now be for your husband. Conversely, God's description of the man is ruling over her. That's not at all a loving servant leadership that God has called the man to. It's a desire to domineer and control. This is not God's good original design curved outward. This is an inwardly curved, destructive distance which is growing by the second. As Derek Kidner notes in his summary of all this, uh, to love and to cherish has now become to desire and to dominate. This has happened like in, in moments from the perfect beauty of God's creation to this relationally broken all over the place it's happened in moments it's this like radical devastating transformation that we're seeing described here where the outward other center relational curve god designed us with comes in direct result now it's we've become curved away from god and that leads us right into be curved away from one another and beyond that what we see described here is the devastating consequences of our being curved away from one another and that we continue to experience to this day. This is what we all experience now in our own relationships with one another. Our curve away from God causes us to be curved away from one another. This is true whether you're married or not. We all experience this relational brokenness because of our inward curve. In the very same way that Adam and Eve began to interact with God and respond to him with fear and, submission and, and suspicion, we now respond to one another in the exact same way as well. We approach each other that way now. We're looking out for one another. Facing the trials of life together now becomes looking out for number one. And to make matters worse, this inward curved nature is something we're completely blind to. We can't even see it, actually. 
as Keller notes, self-centeredness by its very nature makes you blind to your own while being hypersensitive, offended, and angered by that of others. So we can see it in everybody else, but you can't see it in yourself. What can we do? What, what, what in the world can we do in the face of this? Under such impossible, devastating circumstances where now, not only is the fullness of life that God designed us to have with relationship with Him forever limited, now our ability to trust and develop deep, transparent intimacy and relationship with one another is forever restricted as well. What can we, what can we do in the face of that? Does the Bible only diagnose the problem? Does it only just point and say, see, that's where it started? Or does it also offer us hope to reshape that inward curve of our hearts back towards God as well as to one another? Well, as I hope to show you over the coming weeks, the answer is yes. It does both. (laughs) It both reveals the origin of the problem, but also God offers us all kinds of different tools by which we have hope for reshaping the curve. Everything from marriage to singleness to our sexuality to parenting, God has woven all of these helps into his design in order that by them we might begin to undo the curve. We might to be able to unbend that inward curved nature back outward once again. But as I said, the broken relationship with one another begins with our broken relationship with God. The vertical relationship being broken is what leads to the broken horizontal relationship. And so the greatest of all the helps that God offers, and actually the one we need in order for the others to work, is also given to us right here in Genesis 3 as well. A hope given by God to reshape the curve of our nature back to its original design, given in the very same moment that we became inwardly bent. And you see that hope both implied as well as promised. Look, first of all, at verse 21 of this passage. Here, in response to their newly found shame and nakedness, we see the loving God of the universe removing their feeble, man-made attempts to cover their shame and covering it instead himself. Note, covering their shame and their nakedness by sacrificing the life of an animal to do so. Which implies, really is foreshadowing what he later promises in verse 15. Look with me there. Here God is describing the consequences, the the curse on the serpent for deceiving Adam and Eve and bringing all this distortion into the God's good creation. And he says to the snake, I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Delivering what theologians refer to as the proto-evangelium, which is to say the very first telling of the gospel message. Where God would send a rescuer, would send a fixer, would send his very own son, the Lamb of God, born of a woman, to do battle with the serpent, and although he would suffer and surrender his life in the battle, in so doing, he would win the war and crush the head of the serpent, defeating Satan and undoing the power of his deception for all time. 
That's what's being implied and promised to us here. And it's in reference to that promise, actually. And the death of the Lamb of God to cover our nakedness and shame, to to reshape the inward curve of our hearts. The Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians this, listen. And he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. It's the intent to, to reshape the curve back towards him in order that we could be restored in relationship with him and restored in relationship to one another. He goes on, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, though we once regarded Christ in this way. We do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. That's what it means to be in relationship again, to have our nature curved back towards him. It's to be a new creation. It's to be restored back to a way where the relational brokenness that takes place all around us can be fixed. We have hope for reshaping it once again. Do you see it now? Do you see it? The the promise of the gospel given all the way back when our nature first curved away from God and one another is that by Jesus' suffering, we would be brought back into relationship with our creator once again. It's through him that we have hope to be curved back towards God. It's through him that, that, that as he was stripped naked and nailed to a Roman cross, we would have hope to have our shameful nakedness covered with the clothing of his righteousness. As I said, the, the curving away from God, it's the thing that causes us to be curved away from one another. But by coming to faith in Jesus, our promised rescuer, the seed of the woman, finding our hearts curved back towards him. It's the thing that's going to enable all these other things we're going to look at in the coming weeks to work. It's the batteries in the toy, if you will, that will make all these other strategies. We'll actually have hope to see them work in order to reshape our relationship with one another as well. That's the call and the hope of what's given to us in this passage, given in the very moment that we lost it, a restored relationship with Christ. He is the greatest tool of all that gives us hope to reshape the curve back towards God as well as to one another. Amen.